everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. And, uh, well, just as an anniversary episode dropped, a momentous occasion, like we uh, discussed in that episode, um, it was officially episode 200, but uh, we've, we've done 100 bonus episodes uh, along the way. So technically it was episode 300, if you want to get, uh, you know, uh, technical about it. <laughs> but I had an epiphany for the first bonus episode of May because we're mainly just doing uh, those again for this month as, as opposed to a, an official director but yet at the same time I've got an official director writer, editor, podcaster extraordinaire on the show he's a perfect guest to contact and invite back because the reason I started podcasting in the first place was because well over a decade now I heard this show called Film Junk randomly when I was searching for uh movie podcast to listen to at a boring day job I had downtown and I just loaded up on episodes into my iPod which is now discontinued apparently uh, but little did I know that discovering film junk would kind of change my trajectory uh, and one of the hosts in particular felt like a brother from another mother <laughs> due to his taste in films also his sense of humor and weird wild adventures involving trips to the doctor I'm of course talking about the one and only Jay Cheel, who is a terrific filmmaker, and Patrick and I spoke very early on for the uh, episodes we did on Errol Morris and John Carpenter, but he's back with the second uh, iteration of his amazing series that's playing on Shudder, Cursed Films. We're going to talk about all that and more. Welcome back to the show, a real hero and one of the most talented <laughs> human beings I know, Jay Cheel. Definitely hero material. <laughs> um, thank you for having me, Jim. It's, it's been a while. It has it's been a while. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You um, know, I wanted that. All right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, it has been a while. I, I, I've had the pleasure of talking with, uh, Frank and, and, and Sean. Gosh, what did we do? We did, uh, we did, uh, what was the last one? Oh, we did David O. Russell and the, uh, Zucker brothers or the Zucker Abrams Zucker team at one point. But we'll have to get you back on maybe next year if you have time for an official director again, because those episodes yeah. are always a treat. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But um, I, I, I'm, sh I'm hoping you can hear this, but of course I'm using my Rodecaster Pro and, uh, I, you know, I have, to, I have to do something in your honor, in your spirit, and uh, something, you know, pay, pay tribute, pay homage to what you do with this wacky sound pads thing. I, it will not be nearly as graceful as what you do. This is more of like a, a, a ridiculous mashup of sorts. Let's see if this works. Let, let me hear it. Let me hear it. You are a hero, a genuine hero. Fuck, 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 fuck. Like, it's so uninspired. Is there a weird vibe going on tonight? What's going on? What year is this? I feel your presence amongst us. You are a hero, a genuine hero. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I, the, the the ghost drop is that was that was very nice. I always like to hear ghosts being used in some sort of soundboard <laughs> drops. Um, but yeah, the the, the Roadcaster Pro, it's a beautiful thing. For it sure. is. It is. Um, it, <laughs> it's so much fun. And it's hard to know which sound clips to, you know, put in there sometimes. And I just kind of went, I'm just, just randomly put things in there. I don't even know if they're going to 
fit in the context of uh, our conversation. And obviously I'm not going to do what you do and just drop them in <laughs> as you're talking, but uh, <laughs> feel free. I probably deserve it. <laughs> we can always just throw in Frank here. Is there a weird vibe going on tonight? What's going on? That was actually just for the last episode. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. No, but keeping in spirit with the way you approach interviews, I, I, you know, I more or less want to have a general conversation about, um, your smash hit, your your latest endeavor, the Curse Films Two. Obviously, I was a huge fan of the first uh, go around with Curse Films, and now it's uh, I'm I'm pretty floored by what you've accomplished with this series in general. Um, and it's thank you. And it feels like yeah, like an encapsulation of the things that you find interesting about you know film and the stories and behind the scenes things and theories and like it, it feels it feels totally you. And, and yet you're also doing these incredible interviews with a lot of amazing talent. Uh, you know, when I first started watching it, I thought like, this is kind of an interesting integration of Errol Morris and, uh, someone like Rodney Asher who did, you know, Rudin through 37 and, uh, yeah. And, and mixed with your terrific editing skills, of course, uh, I'm just wondering like, how does this all start really? Because, you know, with with a feature film, obviously you have a screenplay, you have some blueprints to go off of and like an outline or something. But, like, you know, do you sort of map out a plan or do you really just find the story later on after you've done all the filming and you're editing it all together? I'm sort of curious about, like, how the initial process begins. Um, well, <clears throat> I, I'm I like to be prepared, but I don't like to be over prepared because I think the the most fun is finding stories while we're traveling. We, we did a sure. lot of filming for this season, um, more, a lot more than the first season. And, you know, we would all be, all, always be looking for, um, new stories and new people to reach out to. And a good example is, uh, Scott Michaels, who's the helter skelter tour, guide uh oh, he right. runs the dearly dearly departed tours he's in our rosemary's baby episode and <clears throat> he was like a an addition while we were in la i was just in the hotel room and you know doing some uh searching around on the internet on on youtube specifically uh for i, I think i was just looking at some of the locations that we were going to visit and came across one of his videos and immediately contacted my producer and said, you know, let's try to reach out to this guy because I think he could be interesting. And I was on the phone with him the next day. And and then we were filming with him the day after that. So, you know, there's there's those elements. There are those elements that are not planned. And sometimes that takes the story in a different direction as well. Mm-hmm. But the the very basic planning is just, you know, what obviously what films we're covering what the key uh, story points are in terms of the legends and rumors surrounding the making of the film. And then just trying to put together a list of interesting interview subjects, some who, who worked on the film and maybe some who might be uh, a unique voice outside of the sphere of the film that could kind of comment on its legacy. And, um, and always kind of just trying to keep it character focused yeah. um, by and by character. I mean, interview subject at making sure that we're getting unique voices and meeting people that are, 
are intriguing and interesting to listen to and to watch. And I, I think that's kind of what hopefully separates this show out from other, you know, like E! True Hollywood Story or <laughs> shows that kind of are purely focused on trying to create some sensation around the stories connected to the films. Yeah, that's something I've, I've struggled with with a lot of sort of docudramas. I mean, most of them are about serial killers. Like, the, the whole true crime wave, I mean, it could be, you know, with the story. I mean, this probably goes all the way back to something that you recently brought up on the show was I Know My First Name is Steven, which I saw pretty, pretty, I think I even saw the premiere with my mom. And it pr- pretty much scarred me for life. And so yeah. I had to, I had to catch up with captive audience when you brought that up. And as I was watching it, I was having like a little bit of a issue with the decision they make with the third episode, like the, the, the focus change and it makes sense why, but it felt, I don't want to say exploitive, but like sensationalizing it to some degree that, that was a series that I, I, I thought like, yeah, this is a, almost like a question of ethics to some degree about, um, you know, uh, trying to figure out the best best way to put it, but like, does it hurt or help to tell that story about this particular, I don't want to spoil it either, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I, I think it's always a, a, a challenging conversation. And I don't, I don't have any like, I, I try to approach all of our subjects with with uh, you know a consideration uh, towards all of those concerns. You know, yeah. not not being exploitative and and <clears throat> not being sensational. And I, I think the thing that I just try to focus on is providing context. I mm-hmm. think when when things are when things feel exploitative, it's it's when they're being used to elicit a a reaction without any context. Yeah. So as much as I love the show cops, <laughs> you, you don't know anything about the people who are being um, stopped by the police. You, yeah. you don't know their history and you don't even know what happens to them after that segment ends. It's just like a, a passerby seeing this moment in this person's life where they're having this, uh, this event happen. And, and that to me is that feels a bit exploitative. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that whenever we deal with a subject or a person that feels like, you know, this could be something that could very easily fall into a sensational exploitative uh, trap, I I try to just counterbalance that with context. But you do. You it's also a do. subjective thing. Like there's there's this series is, is weirdly controversial for a lot of people. And, and I feel like um, for some people, there's just no, like there, there, there's just this opinion that a camera should not be um, focused on certain things. And I, I don't share that opinion. I just feel like you have to do it with empathy and with, um, the intent to provide context. Yeah, no, and you definitely do that. Um, it was just something like, I find it interesting too, both with Captive Audience and now this uh, new HBO Max 
well, it's obviously uh, fictionalized, but or not fictionalized, but um, dr- dramatic. Uh, the sta- the staircase, which was you know a huge hit. Everybody knew about this case because of the Netflix show, or you think of something like the Jinx. And I like that a lot of filmmakers are asking these questions: whether this is a good thing or not, or you know the effect that it's having on our collective psyche in a way. I mean, certainly that's what captive audience, I think, set out to do with, mm-hmm. you know, obviously what happened to this family as a result of all this media coverage surrounding them. And clearly it caused tremendous amounts of PTSD in nearly everyone. And did that, in effect, create um, essentially a, another monster of some kind, I'll say, without spoiling what happens in the third episode? And to me, like yeah. watching that, I thought, well, this is really thoughtful and there's a lot of empathy here for sure. But I also wonder, like, is, you know, is do we need these stories to be told? Because that's exactly what um, certain people wanted. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Or do we need another iteration of the staircase, you know, starring Hollywood stars or whatever? It's those types of questions I ask about when, you know, approaching docudramas or things like this. Yeah. Well, I <clears throat> I actually just rewatched all of The Staircase. Oh, wow. And it was interesting revisiting it because, you know, it, it landed on Netflix in 2018. But the original first seven episodes, I think, air, uh, aired in 2004 mm. on, I think, the Sundance channel. And so it's been around for a while. So it, it predates the true crime craze by a number of years and watching it now, um, after having seen a number of true crime shows within the last five years, um, it's very different. It's for one, it it, it you know it feels like there aren't many um, doc series that are in like in the moment, like yeah. cinema verite sort of. Um, we're covering a trial that's ongoing, and we're seeing the immediate results of every single discovery or decision. It's all, it's always reflective and um, looking back at a story and it's always talking head interviews and cause it's just tough. I think to land in the middle of a story that's ongoing or has just begun, which is what makes the staircase so interesting, but also the way the episodes end really stood out to me on, on this rewatch because they don't end in cliffhangers. Mm. I, I always remembered thinking like they did, but for example, you know the the whole like discovery of the blowpoke and all of the other things that come up. Germany, uh, all the details about Germany. It usually happens in the first act of the following episode. So right. the the idea of that sort of like you know uh, cliffhanger driven keeping you wrapped in the algorithm and just, you know, constantly hitting next, 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 because you need to know where the story goes, isn't really there. So that, that, that feels like something that I understand why they're, they're, you know, these shows feel that it's necessary to have these cliffhangers. They want to keep people engaged, but that does feel a little like you're turning something very dark into entertainment. Yeah. Um, That's why I don't know how I feel about, you know, I, I, I do like the filmmaker Antonio Campos and certainly 
the cast involved with the staircase. And I was just curious how they're going to tackle this when we already know pretty much everything (laughs) and would it be compelling on its own? And you're right that at least the three episodes I've seen, they kind of do end with cliffhangers because they know that's Mm -hmm. what hooks people in. But yeah. And that, I think that's just, uh, especially with the true crime doc world, you know, the jinx kind of, I think had a, a, uh, I guess you could say neg- maybe negative effect in that every show now people want some major revelation. Like it can't just be, it can't just be about the people who were caught up in some horrible tragedy and, and trying to like figure out what that, that means and how that changes someone and how you relate to it or whatever. It has to have some hook and, if it doesn't end on some twist and or some reveal, then it's not a satisfying ending. And I feel like that came from the jinx directly. Um, it, it kind of set the bar for like, if, if you want to have a hit true crime show, you have to have someone, you know, admitting <laughs> guilt on a hot mic. Um, so even, even that, you know, that has an effect on both the audience and the filmmakers. Cause the audience is the one that suddenly, needs that sort of um you know they want that level of of entertainment but and the filmmakers want to provide that to them so what are the filmmakers doing to try and get to that level you know to satisfy the audience and i think that's where it can get kind of tricky um ethically and yeah yeah and and i I mean you mentioned that uh, certainly Cursed Films has been considered a little controversial uh, by some people. I, I would think that the Rosemary's Baby episode, I mean, to me it was interesting in, in how much it really sums up the paranoia and all, all that was going on culturally surrounding that era, you know, the late 60s and all the devastating things that happened, particularly the Manson murders. <laughs> it's almost like a perfect episode to watch after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you probably have to be thoughtful and, 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 and consider Mia Farrow in all of this and what she's been through recently with that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Woody Allen, uh, another, th- another series that played, I believe on HBO max that I felt uncomfortable and, you know, uh, questioning whether it was good or not to watch, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think you, you probably have to sit down and almost think about your approach to something like Rosemary's Baby and, you know, and how you're going to tell that story and how much you're going to involve, you know, Mia Farrow and certainly all the things that have happened to her personally. Yeah, I mean, it. it a, a big part of my approach to these episodes is kind of letting the subjects guide the conversation obviously but also the tone um so if if you know like and of course we we choose a number of these subjects to be in the show so there's an editorial choice to have certain voices represented and others not um sometimes not by our choice you know just we we can't get someone to be in the the episode but um that's that's a very important thing and you know with the rosemary's baby episode all i think more so than the mia farrow uh thing the the polanski sure uh, uh you know that whole element is 
something that going into it, we all knew would be a controversial thing, even if, you know, there, I know there are some people who think that by not including that, you know, it's kind of like avoiding some mm-hmm. subject. It's, it's not avoiding it. It's, it's purpose, purposefully leaving it out so that I, I think it's almost more powerful than if we put a card or something or like had a voice for, you know, 30 seconds referring to what happened, which would then also just weirdly suggest we're connecting a statutory rape of a minor to a curse, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, that's tricky. And, and, and also (laughs) the, the fact that the episode is very much set in 68 and 69. It's very much about 68 and 69. Um, the only real, you know, um, exception to that is Victoria Vetri catching up with her and things that happened afterwards. But it it still dr- like connects back to the paranoia of the late sixties mm-hmm. that stuck with her. So, but you you know, a lot of people I think, especially with this series, I think there's a lot of people that are tuning in for information. Yeah, you know, for trivia, um, and not not so much for subtext or for character or for the themes or whatever. So I could, you know, (laughs) try to reply to someone on whatever Twitter or or wherever and explain to them the, the intentions of certain things that they felt were questionable. And those intentions would come from a place of the consideration of the, the, the filmmaking and the storytelling. Um, And I think for a lot of people, documentaries just don't fall in that zone. I think they're, they're information delivery devices for a lot of people. And I think the idea of a documentary using something like metaphor or subtext or whatever uh, the tools that scripted filmmakers use, that doesn't really resonate, I think, with some people. But then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, Polanski wasn't in the episode. And by people commenting on that, there's probably more people talking about like Polanski being this problematic figure than there would be if there was a, you know, a subtle mention to that in the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And even if there was a subtle mention, there would be complaints that there wasn't enough time dedicated to it. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation, but we knew that going into it. Yeah. You sort of had to prepare for those types of reactions I would think. And, you know, I, I, I certainly like, that's the thing too, is like, I feel like people approach documentaries as like you said, information dumps in a way that's like a a Wikipedia entry, you know, done Mm -hmm. visually and you don't do that at all. And I think that's what makes, I mean, you make it cinematic, you make it entertaining and yet engaging, but also you, you, you learn something as you're watching the episodes. I thought the, you know, even with the Wizard of Oz episode, I thought it was interesting to hear Steve Steve Rash, uh, director of Under the Rainbow, sort of go back and realize that his work doesn't hold up. <laughs> you know, and and yeah. like he's, it's like he's reckoning with the past and and you know, kind of going, oh no, maybe I I didn't do such a great job, or I wasn't good in representing you know uh, little people or or things like that. I think. 
And it also, yeah. that, that nicely ties into how some of the actors felt, uh, you know, in light of what's happened with cannibal Holocaust too. I think that that sort of ties it all together. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Steve Rash is a great example of that sort of, um, finding the story both in the field and in the edit, because we were just going to talk to him about under the rainbow as a, a curiosity that perpetuated the, um, drunk munchkin orgy <laughs> myth. Uh, but, you know, we we showed up and he and his wife, who also worked on the film, had watched it, um, I believe, the, the day before or that morning. Hmm. And they hadn't seen it in 20 years and that was their reaction. <laughs> so it was like a completely different interview. It, the, the interview, there was never any thought that the interview would be Steve essentially apologizing for that film. Um, he yeah. just felt he needed to do it because they were surprised at how out of touch it was. And his wife said she was, she said she was devastated watching it and she was trying to just didn't want, it was, she said it was the worst day of (laughs) the year or whatever. Um, So they were wanting to use it as an opportunity to acknowledge, you know, those things in that film. And, and so when, when that happens and then it's like, okay, this, this interview is, completely different and and you know serves a totally different purpose and what is that purpose so you know in the edit having steve rash reckoning with with the past in uh, surrounding his film which is uh, mostly forgettable yeah if not I've com- forgotten completely all about forgettable <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um blip in early 80s cinema putting that right up against Oz historians attempting to rationalize some of the, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff that happened on the set of Oz, in particular, the slap of Judy Garland. I think that suddenly creates an interesting contrast. And then it's like, okay, this, a lot of this episode is about reckoning with the past and, you know, the idea of things have changed, but where is that line in terms of like still appreciating something for, for what it was and understanding that, you know, it was a different time back then, but also acknowledging that it was still problematic. Um, and, and that's the kind of like thematic connections that I love discovering or sometimes planning for, but I, to be honest, usually just kind of discovering and, but also the kind of thing, again, getting back to what we were just talking about that I think, for some people just kind of goes over their heads because they're just looking at the information and not how the information informs um, counterpoints or <laughs> like how the information is kind of placed against each other to create some, some, you know, other conversation that might be subtextual, but is there. Um, so, you know, get being an upset about a bunch of white men seemingly downplaying, um, Victor Fleming slapping Judy Garland. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's in there for a reason. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's weird with this show because it's always, uh, it, you know, the title is, is uh, something we are always up against, whether it be, you know, narrowing the potential for films that we can cover. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't slot into the cursed 
ideal cursed film um, definition, or you know, even just in approaching subjects, especially on the first season, asking them to be in something called cursed films to talk about something that might be sensitive is is a bit of a challenge. Um, so I, I think that doesn't do us any favors. That there's already it's a bit of a bait and switch. Like there's already an expectation when a lot of people go into the series that it that it's going to be exploitative and sensational. So I think it's read by some people read it as that on the surface. And the challenge is trying to trying to acknowledge that that's not what it is enough that they understand, but then not also just completely spelling it out for people. You know, there's still, I still want it to be somewhat like engaging where it's just not all laid out for you. Yeah, no. And you have a very thoughtful and considerate approach. It's like, I, I was even thinking, oh no. I mean, even with going back to the first series with Poltergeist and I just, I, it's so sad what happened to Heather O'Rourke that it actually, you know, it's similar to with, um, it's, uh, I, I guess it's not similar, but I think it's because I saw both of these films when I was, when I was younger, um, Savannah smiles, the lead actress of Savannah smiles also died very young, very different circumstances granted. But I, I just remember being really like affected by losing Heather O'Rourke because I grew up watching poltergeist and I thought, oh boy, this is this is gonna make me all sad and everything. But and it certainly does. But I mean, in, in a in a way that I think you're you're very compassionate in your approach, and certainly involving the interview of um, Gary Sherman, who I, I that's a f- phenomenal director, very underrated. Somebody that comes from Chicago, and and I've sung the praises of Dead and Buried a lot <laughs> on the podcast. And I thought mm-hmm. that 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 interview really did showcase that you're not just oh let's sensationalize the death of and tie it into this you know idea of what a curse is and all these terrible things happen after you know both on set and then afterwards you know no I think you did it r- the right way by actually talking to different people about their perspectives and letting them have their say. Uh, and yeah, well, I, I'm glad you feel that way. I mean, the, I think the big important distinction is that the show Cursed Films isn't claiming any of these films are cursed. Right. It's a it's about people who are claiming these films are cursed or the or saying trying to, dis, to dispel this idea that they're cursed. Yeah. And that's the key. Uh, if there's I, I think the 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 problem with some of the e true Hollywood type of shows is that they go in with a very focused intention in terms of how uh, spooky they want something <laughs> to be or how, you know, they, they just really leaning into certain supernatural things or, you know, whatever it might be. With this show, it's completely up to the subject what they want to talk about and how they want to talk about it. And Gary Sherman, you know, maybe if it was a, a more soundbitey interview and we were, you know, wanting to wanting him to play up the weirdness of things that have happened on that on the Poltergeist three set or something. Yeah, it could have that interview could have gone a completely different way, but it was in his hands, and that's where he took it. And I go along with him and just kind of, you know, try to bring that out of him. And and more often than not, that's I think a successful approach. 
Um, yeah, it's clear that he, I, I, he he wrestled certainly with even completing Poltergeist three. Yeah, you know? and I, you know, I, I those are the kinds of interviews that are the best, where it's it's just asking someone to speak openly, like Craig Reardon in the same episode, wanting to oh, yeah. have his say in terms of people connecting the death of of those girls to the use of real bones on the set getting that sort of honesty from him that he's he was on the true hollywood e true hollywood <laughs> poltergeist episode and that almost led to him not doing our show because he didn't want to be fucked over again yeah. by having his his comments contextualized in the way that they were in in that episode so it was very much like well this is the chance to just kind of provide the appropriate context um, because yeah, do you know, it the right. show's called Cur- yeah. yeah, the show's called Cursed Films, but we're not we're not you know perpetuating or pushing this this idea. It's about why why people think they're cursed and why the the legends in some cases have kind of outlasted the films themselves. Yeah, I imagine working on all this. I mean, did it change the way you think about what it, what a curse is and what it means to be cursed? Because a lot, a lot of people who have a string of bad luck or a bad, a lot of bad things happen to them in life often casually say, I think I'm cursed, you know? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, I think that's the, when I think of the title cursed films, that's what I think about. Just like the, the the various ways in which that word can be used to describe a situation that seems to be going completely wrong and mm-hmm. and depending on the the details connected to that circumstance the more su- superstitious person might start thinking it could be something supernatural but there's also the other side where it's just you know a lot of bad planning, (laughs) like the uh, serpent in the rainbow episode there, there's, there is the voodoo element where there was this sort of aura um, being in Haiti and, and going to these ceremonies and kind of being uh, in the middle of, of all of the, this talk of voodoo. Um, But really it's, it was about like the naivete and the hubris to think that you could bring an American film crew to Haiti and film there assuming that it's going to be easy peasy. You're (laughs) you're not going to have any sort of negative impact on the community or the culture. So, so there are many definitions there, but, but you know, when, when talking about the idea of a curse in the, I guess, traditional sense, it is interesting to think about why I don't believe in curses necessarily. I also kind of do because of (laughs) other people believing in them. So if someone believes that they've been cursed, um, we get into this a little bit in, in I think the poltergeist episode, but if someone's superstitious and they, they think that they've been cursed or they, you know, with sports, it's, it's a huge thing with baseball players and like wearing a lucky ring or a lucky hat or whatever it might be. And even if, it's just a superstitious thing. If they realize they don't have their lucky hat that they forgot it, you know, it could affect the way that they play because it's just their belief in that thing being important to their performance will shake them and will have a, a, an effect on their performance. So that is a curse, <laughs> you know, like it's not, yeah, it's not something that um, is, is like, 
I, I think you just have to believe that you are cursed and believe in curses in order to be cursed. <laughs> um, you know, it, yeah. cause the more, the, the more you believe, the more likely you'll just kind of, it'll be a self fulfilling prophecy and you'll kind of fall into, um, allowing things to kind of fall apart because you think you've been set on this dark path. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I like, I always think about the placebo effect and confirmation bias. And like you mentioned, self-fulfilling prophecy and, all these things like, are we creating? Cause some people do believe that like the power of positive thinking, right? Like <laughs> if yeah. you believe in <laughs> good things will happen to you, then guess what? Good things will happen to you. And I don't know. It's, it's, you know, when, when you've had a string of bad things happen, it's hard to feel encouraged. Like, Oh, I'll just think positive thoughts, <laughs> you know, yeah, and that'll solve everything. I, I mean, even that it, it's interesting because I, I don't, I don't really believe that, but right just like the curse thing, I do believe that if someone does believe <laughs> that, um, then maybe their positive outlook will be affected and they might start, you know, trying a little harder to make a change in their life or they might start, it might inspire something. I don't, I don't think it, I believe in something having a direct effect in a, a sort of like, I don't know. Um, like a supernatural way or how, however you would put it. But I think psychologically there could be um, a positive effect in that way. And, and that's, you know, a lot of the interesting conversations, especially in the first season that I was able to have with um, a lot of cool people like Mitch Horowitz, who's, who's uh, very much, um, you know, a, a cult historian and believes a lot of the stuff that, that, I we're talking about, but in a very kind of rational way that, you know, out of everyone that I spoke to that was on the side of kind of being a believer, he's the one that was the most interesting because his, just the way that he discusses these things, it, it, it just feels like it comes from a, a place of being um, both educated in the subject matter, but also having kind of a very unique perspective and being open to the idea of, well, you know, this might not be a real thing in the way that people think about it traditionally, but it has become real because of that way people think about it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff surrounding curses, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm always interested in like the psychological effects, you know, having studied psychology in particular, but I mean, you know, like, oh, am, 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 do I have, you know, anxiety and or depression because I watch so many horror films? Probably not. It just, you know, there's there's a, like some people believe that, though. Some people believe like, oh, if you're raised on a certain diet of culture, that it's going to eventually get to you somehow psychologically. And, and, and watching something like this, too, really made me think about the actors in, in all of this, like someone like Bill Pullman. Like, I can't. I can't stand watching the buried alive sequence in Serpent and the Rainbow because uh, I I can't st like the idea of being trapped in a confined space really freaks me out. Um, I don't ever want to be on an elevator if it's <laughs> it won't work. That's a, mm -hmm. a terrifying notion. But certainly being buried alive is even worse because obviously you can't breathe and you're you know you're stuck in a certain uh, pattern and you can't move and you can't get your way out of there. So that, that whole thing. And certainly when that happens in kill bill volume two, I can't watch that. I, I just, I found it really interesting to he hear from someone, an actor I've really admired for a long time, Bill Pullman 
and like his kind of out of body experience that he talked about or something like that. That was really, yeah, yeah, that was a fascinating interview and obviously for, for a lot of reasons, of course. Yeah. He was great. Um, very nice and just everything you would hope that Bill Pullman would be. He is at least in the time that I met him. And, uh, that story, it's interesting because he, in the show, he says he's not really comfortable talking about it. And in the interview at that point, I just kind of moved on and was like, that's okay. We can, you know, you can talk generally or we can, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. And he made a comment about us being Canadian and (laughs) polite. Um, (laughs) and, um, and then two questions later, I, I circled back to it and I was just like, Bill, I got to ask you, (laughs) what, what is this thing that you were talking about? And, um, and he opened up about it and I I think he was still a, a bit, you know, guarded or, or protecting a little bit of the detail of what happened. But, but it just sounds like he had a, a bit of an epiphany or something yeah. or, or just a, a, an experience that opened his mind to things that he hadn't previously considered. And it feels like a lot of people on the crew had similar experiences. I know uh, David Ladd as well left that film shoot with um, a, a kind of... Uh, interest in spirituality that wasn't there before and it informed certain aspects of his life. So yeah, I mean, it's um, not all of the episodes, even though there are things in that episode surrounding the making of that film that are very questionable and <laughs> um, not to overuse the word, but problematic, but there's also uh, I think with that episode in particular, a, a sort of positive side to it as well, at least in terms oh, yeah. of, the bonding of this crew and, and um, them going through this experience and coming out the other end with maybe a, a bit more of a respect for um, how their, their, what they set out to do could <laughs> result in negative consequences because maybe they were being too cavalier or too naive. So I, I, I think that story is a great one as sort of a, um, a bit of a, change of pace you know as being like an adventure story of a bunch of young people led by Wes Craven going out going to Haiti and having this wild experience yeah no I th- I, th- I think it's important to point that out you know because you know we, we don't want people <laughs> we don't want people to think it's all about like oh all these horrible things that happened afterwards no there's you mentioned the, the sort of communal and collective gathering that happens when you're making a film and if you have a, an experience together that you can all share and it sort of bonds you all together, I imagine that happens with your crew, even just putting these, this in, entire process together from po- uh, pre-production to post-production. I, you know, I think uh, it's important to highlight yeah. others that have helped you along the way in this process too. And I think that's like, even if not everything goes right, there's, you can focus on the positive and certainly be grateful for, because this is a tricky time. I, I mean, a lot of movies are still getting made, even though we're, I know we're trying to say like, oh, the pandemic is, it's coming to an end. It's going to be an endemic and all this. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it must've been challenging to film <laughs> during COVID and certainly traveling the way you did. Uh, yeah, it, it was. I mean, <sighs> it, 
made us take for granted the first season where we could travel unencumbered and, and enter people's homes without thinking twice about it. And, you know, there was, there were a number of situations this season where we had to film interviews outside when we might not have done that. You know, (laughs) it's always more of a challenge filming outside, especially when you end up under a flight path. And oh yeah, that that you know was it was what it was. Um, I I just wanted to make I, I I didn't want to feel that in the show. Like I didn't want to do Zoom interviews or yeah, you know, kind of it. Oh, let's embrace the COVID thing and have you know really make a point of people taking their masks off before interviews or. Um, doing interviews via Zoom or whatever it might be, um, we just wanted to make the show as though it was made, at, uh, you know, not during a pandemic. All of that was behind the scenes. It was just a lot of, uh, it was a logistical nightmare in many ways, the travel for this season, especially considering this season we traveled internationally and went to Estonia and went to Ukraine and, and went to Rome um, those were, it, you know, it, it happened. It, we made it work. Brian, my producer did a really great job at, you know, knowing what we, what papers we had to have filled out. And, um, but even then there were things that were changing almost daily when we were in Rome, we were, we were supposed to fly from Rome to LA and the day before, um, when the Biden administration uh, took over. They they changed uh, rule and huh. decided you you couldn't fly from the EU directly to the states, and that happened the day before we were supposed to fly out. So wow. we had to, uh, and we didn't learn that until we were getting our tickets. You know, an hour and a half, two hours before our flight. So um, that was stressful, uh, especially seeing as at the time there was a weird rule in Italy. We were in Rome and, and that you could stay there 120 hours before having to quarantine for two weeks. Huh. So we were specifically flying out at a time just like before that 120 hours. So if we missed our flight and were stuck in Rome, I don't know what the logistics would be like if how... I don't know if you're supposed to self-quarantine or how they would find out what's going on, but (laughs) we would have had to apparently quarantine for two weeks in a hotel if we missed that flight. So that would have been a disaster. Um, But we, we managed to get out of there and we had to fly back to Canada and, and kind of re-strategize. And every time we ended up back in Canada, that was a two week quarantine. So, you know, we, we, I think we ended up spending two and a half months just quarantining oh, wow. in total. Yeah. Well, it's better to be safe. And, you know, certainly tra- traveling to a place like Chernobyl and <laughs> like I was, I was floored by that episode for a, a lot of reasons. And certainly it's, it's, it's beautifully shot in that space. And I mean, I, I, as you state in the beginning of the episode, this was, you know, all this was before the horrible invasion took place and, you know, you had to figure out all these certain protocols must have been tricky. But, you know, going to just seeing that there's like an ice cream parlor <laughs> around that area, yeah. I was just like, 
really? That's nuts. That it's like a tourist attraction <laughs> the way it is. It's nuts. It's like going yeah, it's, to Disney World or something. <laughs> it's a weird place. I mean, the yeah. a lot of the, the the extremely touristy stuff is right outside the exclusion zone. So <sighs> wow. that's at the checkpoint. It's almost like a border crossing. So before you enter the exclusion zone, all the buses stop and everyone loads up on ice cream or whatever, um, novelty masks, and then you enter the zone. And while in the zone, it's not as touristy, but we did eat at the uh, power plant, at the Chernobyl power plant in the cantina. And at, in the entrance at the power plant, there's a little kiosk, that like gift shop. Right. So, you know, it is it is strange. It's a very surreal place, but I am so grateful that we had the chance to go there, especially you know, in in exploring the 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 story connected to Stalker. It was just such a great reason to be in both uh Tallinn in Estonia and in Ukraine and will be uh obviously a experience that i will not forget um yeah so, that's a, spe- yeah, that's was, a special film it's so unique and so deliberately paced in this way that i think yeah can put some people off but it, it really envelops you it's it's one of those movies that i find a lot of tarkovsky's movies i have to be in the right mood for obviously with those long takes and mm-hmm. everything but once you're ready for it, like it's, it took me several times to finally sit down and, and absorb Solaris. And yeah. I just, you know, I thought it was an interesting choice. I thought this was a, a film that I didn't necessarily equate with like, Oh, you know, a typical horror film like Poltergeist or the exorcist or Rosemary's baby or something. But you found like a, a very rich and interesting story to tell it's, you know, again, like all these play like little short films in of themselves and, 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 and in a way that's make makes them all distinguishable, but yet truly you <laughs> at the same time. Uh, but yeah, yeah no, we, that one we were happy to get to do that film. I mean, it, it's definitely the outlier of the season. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of people, if they watched the episode, haven't seen the film, but I feel like, you know, it'd be great if they did watch the film and from what I've seen, a lot of people have been inspired to check it out after seeing the episode. But um, I think the the story within the episode and the passion um, expressed by the people who worked on Stalker yeah. and the people who love that film is is kind of uh, infectious. So um, I feel like it 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 works even if you haven't seen the film. But it's definitely you know, I would suggest people check it out for sure. Yeah. And, and the only, the only one of, I think pretty much your entire series that I'm not a fan of. And I mentioned this to you was, uh, you know, cannibal Holocaust. It's just not a film I've ever really enjoyed watching for a lot of reasons. Obviously the animal deaths are awful. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I, I I understand its place in, in, you know, in, in, in the world of being a cinephile, I understand like, Oh yeah, clearly it's laying the foundation for things to come. Like a lot of the found footage films like Blair Witch, as you, you mentioned and do a really great interview with the director of that film. 
but yeah, I mean, it's sort of, again, ties back to what we're talking about with, uh, with, with certain thematic elements that are on, are contained within wizard of Oz in, in that the actors themselves, they're, and you lay it out that the fact that they feel very uncomfortable with a lot of the reactions and certainly what they did making that film. And I think that's, that was really important. And you, you end the series on a very unexpected note too, with hearing from, uh, yeah, one of the actors. Yeah. I, I, the whole series ends on one word, awful, (laughs) (laughs) which I like. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's I, I'm not uh, I'm not a, a fan of Cannibal Holocaust. I do see certain aspects of it that are unique and mm-hmm. valuable, I suppose. But I, I don't really like the cannibal sub yeah. genre. Yeah, I, I'm kind I of find with you them on most that. mostly hard to watch and. I don't know something about them. They're just kind of gross uh, on many levels and cannibal Holocaust is the same. And you know, it it was a, it's a challenging episode because you know, we don't want, I think it was the most challenging in terms of, of conversations with shutter in regards to what, Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and what the, where the line is where it's like, okay, this is, too much but this is also too little if we're showing too little then we're not we're not representing what these people are talking about you know Mm -hmm. like we need some context when francesca is talking about some horrible rape sequence we need to understand what that is without indulging in it in the way that the film does yeah but it's you know there's just a lot of uncomfortable stuff in there and not just the animal killings but the rape scenes and, you know, dealing with the fact that they talk about one of the rape scenes in the film, the, the actor in quotes, the performer was a 14 year old girl. And this is the person that is the, the kind of iconic image of this film, this, this girl mounted on this pole Mm. naked, covered in blood and after hearing that them say she was 14, then it's suddenly like, well, we can't even show the, 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 the <laughs> like the thing that's on the poster. The thing that's the most iconic yeah. shot of the movie is, is uh, territory we can't go in because of that fact. And that's the challenge of covering that film is like, there's just so much grotesque stuff connected to it that you have to figure out how much you want to get your own hands dirty in, in, in telling that story. And I I think to be honest with a lot of these things, we do have to get our hands a bit dirty because it's, there is an element of like when, when uh, Eugenio in the, in that episode is talking about cannibal Holocaust being this weird contradiction where it's like telling you, you know, chastising you for enjoying the violence in this film, it, you know, the theme of it being who are the cannibals, but also providing that violence for you to, and using yeah. it as sort of a, um, a set piece. There, there is a subtle element of that with our series, which is like, you know, all of these stories feel really 
sometimes fun when they're summarized as bullet points on BuzzFeed. But once you actually start talking to the people, they're a little more intense. And I think we, we have to, we have to kind of go down in some cases, like the twilight zone episode. I, I just feel like there's certain paths we had to go down that maybe not everyone agrees with, but provides the appropriate context for, illuminating why these things can be it it can be a problem when you look at some of these stories and just think of them as trivia or as you know notorious like the the notorious scene where this thing happens and and looking at it as though it's like a challenge to watch this thing and well what is the context behind that scene like what was the intent and what were the people thinking when they made it and why are we fascinated with it? There, and and the only way to have that conversation is to show parts of that scene, you know, as much as we feel comfortable showing. So it, it is a bit of a contradiction as well. It's like with all of documentary, you know, the idea of, yeah. of exploitation. Yes, you don't want to be exploitative, but technically everything is exploited <laughs> because we're, we're, you know, we're filming and editing these people and, and putting them on the television. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah that's, it's a weird thing. That's kind of why I had that response. Like I said earlier to, you know, the third episode of captive audience. And certainly I'll have that response. Probably anytime there's a true crime story where, yeah, I don't know. Did this, do, are we just glorifying? Are we just basically putting this, Serial killer, like that's they—they they wanted all this attention, right? So here it is. We're giving it to them, and yet I think you know, a, a filmmaker like you is actually treating the subject matter with sensitivity and not just like, yeah, I can't wait to. Because like I, even when I was a teenager, I didn't like the Faces of Death movies or whatever you want to call them, <laughs> uh, the collection, because it was. Yeah it just made me feel gross and it just made me, well, what's the context? This isn't really a story. It's just a series. I mean, I guess what Mondo Kane was certainly kind of a variation of that, maybe a, a more artistic approach to that style. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, with I, its own problems, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I wish I would have, we could have done a, a feature length episode on cannibal Holocaust. And if, if we, when I say we could have <laughs> shut it, I, there was that option wasn't there, but with the amount of material we had, we could have. Um, but I would have liked to have gotten more into that aspect, the Mondo Kane and, yeah. um, you know, Diodato being inspired by that. And, um, you know, just the weird lines that those films blur with staged scenes and, and, uh, you know, the, the idea of the other and representing other cultures as, you know, um, like a lower form of, of society and, you know, looking in on this, it it very, the way that cannibal Holocaust kind of, you know, that's an aspect of cannibal Holocaust as well, a a racism. Oh, sure. um, Sure. Within there. And, and even though, Again, Diodato says the film is about that racism. It's about colonialism and it's about all of those things. But he also engages in it yeah. as he's criticizing it. Um, and that's a, a hypocrisy. But I, I don't think that's uh, – it's definitely not the worst 
that hypocrisy isn't the worst thing about the film, but it is something to acknowledge. And, but I also think there's a lot of things that are guilty of that. And I'm sure I, I think there are probably elements of our show that's guilty of that because in order to talk about these curses from a analytical sort of perspective or psychological perspective, we have to say what they are, <laughs> you know, like it's, we have to, we are perpetuating them in, in some way. We're just, we're just trying to provide context. Yeah. And you do that wonderfully also while creating, you know, and giving us a lot of entertainment and, I think that's important to provide that, like that nice balance of sensitive approach to the material. But, but at the end of the day, it's also endlessly <laughs> enjoyable to watch too. You know, it's, there's never like a time where I'm like, oh, okay, let's move on. You know, I'm, I think the way it's yeah. paced, it's all perfectly done. Um, you know, and it's, 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 it's just really interesting to think about, you know, how does, how does a filmmaker, how does an actor reframe or go back and look at what they've done and how has it affected them? How has it affected the audience? And now on another level, how has it affected you <laughs> to cover all of this too at the same time? Uh, yeah. There's a lot of layers. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's also nice to be talking to a lot of people who worked on these films that maybe don't get to exactly yeah speak about having worked on these films. Um, or at least in the context that we're talking to them about. Um, I think that's a, a great part of it as well. Like David Anderson in the Serpent and the Rainbow episode, I'm sure he's done a number of interviews. He's, his dad has done a number of interviews. Uh, his dad was in our Crow episode. And I'm sure they've done a lot of talking about makeup effects and working on these shows, but maybe not from such a sort of personal, honest perspective. And I, I hope that's, and I think you can kind of sense that, you know, mm -hmm. I'm hoping when you watch the shows that we're seeing people being very candid and open and, you know, maybe we're getting a glimpse into a moment that we haven't seen before with some of these people. Yeah. And I think it's like you're mentioning, you do give, uh, you know, the, the time and the space for people, like you said, that don't always get to have these conversations or talk about what they've been through. It's not like those document, like the music documentaries where it's like, just like Dave Grohl is going to tell you about how great this thing is. Right. Or this record or this studio or something. It's always, you're always going to see like Dave Grohl or for some reason, Jason Schwartzman or something. <laughs> it's like the, the, mm -hmm. the, the expected, uh, you know, familiar talking heads that show up in a lot of these sort of um, celebratory documentaries, I think uh, kind of uh, make me roll my eyes. So <laughs> I, th I think your yeah. approach is a lot, is a lot better to be honest. Well, I, I hope that's what kind of makes them feel more like documentaries than, yeah. you know, um, whatever, <laughs> whatever else you would <laughs> categorize some, uh, like a, a an ancient aliens or a, a true Hollywood story where it, it, there is a, an attempt at saying something in addition to the information that's being given. And there's a, a, an attention to character and, and, you know, there's um, I think more, hopefully more value to it than just being a, a way to a different way to absorb trivia. Right. 
Um, but it will always be that for some people, which is, which is fine. You know, it is what it is. Someone can watch an episode that we've worked so hard on, like find (laughs) all of these interesting people and angles and, and walk away from it saying, I already, I already know all that stuff. And okay, what, that's fine. Um, but you know, it, it's for me, I, I think my whole thing when I approach my work is I just try to make things if I, if I have the opportunity to have this sort of creative control, I, I just try to make things that I obviously I find interesting and I find appealing and, you know, capture them in ways that interest me. And usually that involves some humor as well. And, yeah. um, and that's the only thing I can do, um, is, is hope that I can curate all of these interviews and, and moments and visuals into a, a sort of collection that seems somewhat different or unique. Especially thinking of like a film like Cannibal Holocaust. I, I think there aren't a lot of, usually when there's something about the making of that film, I think it's, it's usually leaning into the horror, like mm-hmm. yeah. ex- extreme sort of like, I just wanted to strip away a lot of the, expectation that this will be like some you know uh edgelord's wet dream or something (laughs) like it needs to be a little there needs to be when we choose these things a little more substance i think oh exactly that's exactly the right word for it and did you sort of set out to i mean because that's interesting you know you're not being a huge fan of cannibal holocaust did you actually set out for this season to go what if i covered a movie i don't really like (laughs) <laughs> like, was that something that uh, crossed your mind? Cause I would, I would think that if you're going to spend a lot of time editing something, you sh- you'd want to be a fan <laughs> in a way. No, not really. I mean, I, I think the film itself is like the actual film is, um, not the most important part. I, sure. I think the, okay. yeah. the, the, like the, the, what's connected to the film, the legacy of the film, where the film lands in cinema history, what people think about the film and obviously the story is connected to it, but then access to people, you know, Ruggiero is a, a character. Ooh, uh, right. Luca Barbareschi is a character. All of them are. Um, so, you know, it, that's the, the most important thing. I mean, I'm not a really, a, I'm not a fan of Twilight Zone, the movie either. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. That's um, true. Yeah. That, that's, um, it's not a requirement, but <laughs> it, it, it's definitely a different experience when I'm a fan. Like if, if like the Exorcist episode, being able to talk to people about that movie and, and, you know, meet people that were in the movie and connected to the making of it, that's a lot of fun. Um, but, um, yeah, it, 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 it's not a requirement. It, it can be more interesting in many ways. Um, but I definitely <laughs> cannibal Holocaust. It did not inspire me to like, Oh, it was, I think I'll watch that again. Like after <laughs> having gone through all of this, you know, with the first season, there were a couple of the movies where it was like, it'd be interesting to watch this after having talked to some of these people and, been so sort of um, um, just my you know everything being focused on the making of these movies 
I want to watch it and see if that's changed my perception of oh, it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm no, sure. It did. No interest in watching Cannibal Holocaust to <laughs> you know see if my perception of it has changed. I I I don't think it has. Well, I'm certainly hoping for Curse Films three, and perhaps there are stories surrounding uh, a particular film that you and I both adore, The Gate. <laughs> I doubt there are. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it would I, I be mean, a huge draw or anything. <laughs> if if there were stories surrounding it, I would love to uh, um, investigate them for sure. But uh, that's the thing. I think that's the challenge with the next season. Is you know I, there are lots of stories we can tell, mm-hmm. but the audience I think also has to be open to expanding their own. Um, uh, definition of the the word cursed and you know maybe something is in a horror film but the the stories connected to it feel somewhat horrific like I I just for me the most important thing is just finding great stories and interesting sub um, interview subjects and I think we could make a a couple more seasons if if there was a little more elbow room on on like defining the the series based on the the algorithmically sensitive title yeah. <laughs> of the show um but you know we'll we'll see could I, you could you do a slapstick comedy right i mean who knows you can branch out you know beyond genre like thinking of yeah, like because I know some some people have mentioned Snow Dogs <laughs> as a cursed <laughs> film, so wow. that could be something. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, I think I I really do think this. Like as it went along, I felt like man, this just is this is getting better and better and sort of evolving um, in terms of you know not, not just not just your incredible talent, but just you know certainly the thematic weight and certainly like how we talked about. Um, this whole idea of reckoning with the past and tying that into both Wizard of Oz and then Cannibal Holocaust, I think that, yeah, there was a a lot of thematic things going on that I thought made it even stronger. Not to say that I didn't feel that way about the first season, but there was just something more. (laughs) Like, you know, whether you intentionally did that or not, it just sort of happened, I think. I, I think the first season, going into this one, we thought, okay, the first season is now the primer for how to think about the idea of a curse. Yeah. And, you know, once we got past through that, we didn't need to really go over that stuff again for season two. I think you can just kind of use what we talked about and what you might have learned in season one and apply it critically on your own to the stories that are being told in season two. And otherwise, just, um, you know, we kind of set out to make these these episodes as sort of if not definitive close to definitive looks at the the stories connected to the making of these movies yeah for sure i mean yeah just to kind of like sum things up i i it's to me it's clear that you care about the stories you're telling and the people involved and when it's over uh i certainly feel like i've not only learned something but i was thoroughly entertained and engaged and, 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 and certainly grateful for, for having experienced both seasons. And cause you know, at first I'm like, Oh, are these going to be glorified DVD extras <laughs> or something, you know, but no, yeah. they're fully realized short 
stories, short films that are presented in a way that's distinctively you. And that's, uh, I, heck, I've been a fan going all the way back to Color Not Vidente. <laughs> However you say that. You wouldn't say that to Tom Petty, would you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, it's 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 been fun. I mean, I, the the ability to it's been great working with Shutter on them, and yeah. I do feel like season two we found a good middle ground for how much we kind of dig into the supernatural side of things and how much we focus on character and and story. And um, if we do a season three, we we have a list of films that we're kind of discussing and. Nice. We'll see. We'll see what. I mean, I also it'd be interesting to do something new. That's true. <laughs> but that's I, true. I honestly making cursed films is a lot of fun. It's it's. Uh, it seems like it. It's kind of ideal. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, it just traveling around to all of these places and talking to people about these films that, for the most part, we all love is. Um, like getting to talk to Roger Deakins about stalker. Oh, that's right. Like, I forgot. It, it's, yeah. He's it's amazing. just a great, a great gig. So I would be more than happy to do another season, even if just for my own selfish reasons <laughs> to get to travel and talk to more people and tell more cool stories. Well, I sure hope you do. I mean, clearly the cursed films trilogy, right? You know, things, things come in threes, right? Yeah. Three it has seasons. to be a trilogy. Yeah. Yeah please let's make that happen. And, uh, I know you got to go and, uh, record my favorite film podcasts soon enough. And, uh, I'm grateful again for <laughs> you. St- That's the longest running film podcast ever. Isn't it? Goodness. Uh, apparently according, <laughs> Hey, according to Guinness world records. Yes. Wow. But, um, yeah, it, it's not the, uh, highest quality or most entertaining podcast it's the longest running <laughs> which is i don't think it's i guess, definitely I guess the that's most entertaining. something <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean it's it's pretty great i i don't know if i'll be doing this for nearly as long that's for sure you know it's hard to yeah. balance it it's, it's like time management i don't know how some people do it i mean heck i mean you certainly managed to uh, keep going with film junk while making cursed films, you know, I mean, and you took a couple episodes off here and there, but still that's, that's pretty yeah, great. It's, it's kind of a, you know, there are some moments where it feels like, Oh, I, it's tough to fit in yeah. not just the episode, but watching the movies for the episode. But usually it, it feels like a chance to take a break. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, that's good. You know, when, if I'm not, traveling or if i don't have some insane deadline i i look forward to doing the show and i look forward to listening and i certainly look forward to everything that you do in the future of course i'm uh, a huge fan for life jay thanks for coming on uh, director's club again let's talk again next year if you have some free time cool for sure thanks jim you are a hero a genuine hero <laughs> You better check out Jay's incredible series, Cursed Films, over on Shudder, as well as the Film Junk Podcast, ah, and DirectorsClubPodcast.com, as well as DirectorsClubPodcast at gmail.com. Take care, everybody. Stay safe and stay tuned for a lot more bonus content to come.
fuck, 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 fuck. Like, it's so uninspired.